The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing what the smoking ban says about conservatism today. We'll be looking at the UAE's track record on press freedom. And we'll be asking whether Gen Z can be counted on to defend Britain. First up... The government plans to ban disposable vapes and smoking for people born after 2009. The bill will likely pass the Commons this month, thanks to Labour support. But is this really a wise precedent to set when it comes to government intervention? That's the question Kate Andrews asks in this week's cover piece. And she joins the podcast now, together with Lord Bethel, a Conservative peer and former health minister, who is very much in favour of the ban. Kate You've written The Spectator's cover piece this week in which you argue that the proposed smoking ban means that the Tories are no longer the the party of freedom. It's quite strong words, I would say. I suppose the government's defence would would be that they want to create a smoke-free generation, which is, is that not an admirable and and healthy goal? So what is your opposition to it? It is a admirable and healthy goal and one that I think the vast majority of people would agree with. I would love for the next generation to be smoke-free. The good news for the government is that all of the numbers were already going in this direction. We are at the lowest smoking rates on record. That's true for adults. It's also true for children trying cigarettes for the first time. They are at record lows. This isn't a popular thing to do anymore. It's not a cool thing to do anymore. The kids don't want to smoke. And I think that's fantastic. So the question is, why then create a generational ban? And I suppose the government might say, well, it's for the principal. Actually, we know the government says this is for the children. It's for the protection of the kids. We must protect the children. My frustration, and I think the glaring hole in that argument, is that this isn't for children. It's for future adults. So, of course, 14-year-olds shouldn't smoke. They can't smoke. We have laws for that. Perhaps we should crack down on those laws. But the generational smoking ban is to say that when they turn 18, then when they're 35, then when they're 55, then when they're 90, they will not have the legal right to buy a packet of cigarettes in a way that their peers will. People who are one year older than anyone born after January 2009 will have the legal right to do it. I find it greatly depressing that the Tory party in particular, which loves to champion freedom when it suits them, and loves to talk about free markets and free enterprise and free speech and loves to talk about personal liberties when it suits them, is bringing in what I think is a very frightening mechanism where we will have two tiers of legal consumer rights for adults. Think about how somebody else in power might use that. I know the Tories aren't used to that kind of thought process because it's been 14 years. Well, they might need to get used to it quite soon. Let's say they had to get used to it in the next year or two. Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking, you know, Labour's being very clear that they're going to target food. Labour is very, being very clear that they want to embrace the nanny state. Just last month, Kiyostama was saying he's ready to fight for the nanny state. They are bringing in a new mechanism that I think is going to have a deep negative impact on personal liberty. And I fear that this is just going to fly through Parliament. I'm wondering who's going to stand up and make the case for liberty. James, I would love to get your response to Kate's claims that this is, a, I suppose, a, a creeping illiberalism in Britain. I mean, particularly to 
her point about a future two-tiered state. I mean, it does seem a bit absurd, does it not, that in decades to come, you might have a scenario in which shopkeepers are asking 45-year-olds for ID to check they were born before 2009 or after 2009. Isn't that somewhat ridiculous? Well, I do want to tackle the liberty point because I think that is a really good point. But before I do, Kate did make some wild assumptions there that I do think just need to be addressed. The idea that smoking is fading away on its own is just not right. There's still 13% of the country that is still smoking hard. They are mainly in poorer areas of Britain. We don't see it in, in the elite. But if you were down at the emergency department of a major hospital right now, and most of them are straining under a huge amount of respiratory disease pressure because of the time of year we're at, you would see a lot of smokers. You would see people who are extremely ill uh, because of their lung capacity being incapacitated. And you would see that smoking remains the major cause of preventable cancer overall. So it is still the biggest contributor to ill health. And as you know, ill health is paralysing our economy. On Tuesday, Jeremy Hunt told the Cabinet that there couldn't be major tax cuts because of structural weaknesses in our economy. And top of the list, when he said it to the, it was health. And that was because we have workplace absence of 450,000 people. We have a lot of people who are having to work as carers for those people who are ill. And we have a massive productivity problem. And that's leading to pressure on our national finances, both in terms of the income from that lost work and from the cost of welfare and uh, the healthcare costs. So I just don't accept that this is a problem that is fading away. I think it's actually a really important measure. Hmm. What about Kate's argument that uh, the policy is, regardless of whether you think smoking is, is on the increase or the decrease, that the policy itself is still illiberal and that it will create a two-tiered structure of consumer in Britain? Well, I, I enjoyed Kate's article very much indeed. But the idea that liberalism was the only guiding political principle of the state is probably true in America, where the response to autocracy in Europe when, when in the forming of that country put liberty right at the heart of the written constitution. But it has never been, and is not today, the sole ambition of the British state. In Britain, actually, we have a very strong sense of civic society, have a very strong sense of pragmatism about the way in which we do policy. And one of the most important things that we've done in the last hundred years is the formation of, of universal health care. That is the state standing behind the health care costs of every individual in the country. And therefore, the way in which you go about your health care policy cannot be determined by a complete um, unmitigated, uncompromising approach to small states, liberty and freedom, because we all share the consequences of each other's actions. And that is a that is an unavoidable truth when it comes to doing politics in Britain. Kate, I'd love to know your response to that. As long as we have universal health care, as long as we have the NHS or something like it, everyone else's health is to some degree a concern of ours. Yeah, let's break that down because this is a point that's so often used. We have to think about the National Health Service. Of course, we're all used to that now. It's not just smokers. We spent the better part of two years living our lives to protect the National Health Service. And I think a lot of people have walked away from that experience thinking to themselves, gosh, yes, they were happy to make personal sacrifices for, um, to that point about civic duty you make, you know, for their neighbors, for people that they've never met before, for the elderly. But this idea that we should live our lives for the National Health Service, um, I think is one that is 
increasingly grating on people, not least because they can't even see their GP when they'd like to. The principle of universal access to health care is such an important one. It's one that America doesn't have and should, but virtually every other developed country in the world does have. Right? There's some kind of universal access to health care in practically every developed country. That is not unique to the National Health Service anymore. The NHS is very unique in how centralized it is, how bureaucratic it is, and frankly, how nanny state it is. The UK is now the only country trying to bring in this phased smoking ban. Now that New Zealand has completely scrapped the idea, the UK is going it alone. So despite every other country, developed country in the world, having universal access to health care, it seems it's only the UK that claims that its health service just simply can't handle smokers. And we actually know there's going to be a huge gaping hole in the public finances when we lose the cigarette receipts. Smokers pay about 10 billion pounds in tax a year. That pays their way about three times over on the NHS. I don't want people getting sick from smoking. I don't want people in hospital because they're smoking. But to claim that they're not paying their way is nonsense. They they most certainly are. I think this this whole idea around we can't have smokers because of the economy, because of welfare, because of the National Health Service. These are the exact kinds of arguments we hear when nobody wants to address the issue of liberty. The point of liberty is that sometimes you have to make the ugly, difficult argument. Sometimes you have to argue for things that you don't like, that you don't want to do, and you don't want others to do. We have a right to offend. We have a right to say things that are offensive. We have a right to get fat. We have a right to vape. We have a right to smoke. That doesn't mean I want anybody to do any of those particular things. I don't like seeing people do things that are bad for them, but we all do our own personal things that are bad for us, and we don't want the flavor of the month politician coming along, deciding which flavors of vapes to ban, which is exactly what Rishi Sunak plans to do. I mean, there's going to be somebody in government saying that blueberry's fine and strawberry is not, because when another politician comes along and they have their own pet issue, they have their own pet project that they want to crack down on, apparently that's going to apply to the rest of us as well. So no, I don't think the NHS is in any way a credible argument for this. And I I would also like to reiterate that I I wasn't saying smoking wasn't an issue. James, it certainly is an issue. As you say, about 13% of the adult population smokes. You still have kids trying cigarettes. It's about 1% of children now that say that they smoke, which they should not legally be getting access to, but they do. But this is down from about 10% many decades ago. My point was not that smoking is no issue, it's that all of the numbers have been going in the right direction quite dramatically. The smokers that you're going to find now are going to be of an older generation. They're almost certainly not going to quit. If they are going to quit, they're going to move to the vaping products, which are actually sat here in front of us. And yes, they are colorful. Yes, they are flavored. And that's what a lot of adults like. You've got millions of people trying to quit moving on to vapes. They've been very helpful for that. For whatever reason, the government decided to crack down on that too. I don't think it's pragmatic. If you want to talk about pragmatism in civil society, we're not making pragmatic decisions here, but put aside all the evidence, put aside the pragmatism, the very basic concept that people can come along and make a personal choice into a state decision is one that we got very comfortable with during the COVID years, but one that I think we have to be so aware of and roll back from now, because like I said, these mechanisms, these generational bans could be used for just about anything. And is this really going to pass through Parliament without people raising this as a very serious issue? Well, I thought Kate put extremely well and very thoughtfully, the libertarian analysis of this situation. And there is a, always a role every, every now and again to step back and to look at problems through a libertarian lens and to put liberty and freedom at the top of the agenda. But that is not mainstream conservatism. And Kate said at the beginning that the Conservative Party likes to dress itself up as a freedom party. 
Well, uh, probably it does, but it is not at heart, and it's not in the mainstream tradition, a libertarian party. It sees assets like health as being very fragile and very important for the uh, value and prosperity of the whole country. And you have to nurture those assets and be pragmatic about the way you do it. You cannot take only one political principle and have that trump all others, because if you do, you'll end up with a broken down society where things like health are run into the ground. And that's what's happened here in the UK. We are by far the most unhealthy country in all of Europe, with only, only beaten by the Americans. And that is having a hell of a toll, both on the life prospects and the economic prospects uh, of our population. And we have to do something about that. Now, I'm not a big fan of wading in and telling people what to do. I am a conservative. I have an inherent scepticism of interfering with people's lives. It's not something I'm in a rush to do. But in this instance, we have a health emergency on our hands. And it's not a question of trying to save the NHS. It is literally a question of trying to save the economy and the prosperity of the country. Our ability to be able to put the defence budget up to 60%, which is where it needs to go, depends on being able to raise more taxation. And we ain't going to be able to do that if another half million people drop out of the workforce because they are too poor to go to work. The OBR have been crystal clear on that. The evidence to the House of Lords uh, Economic Affairs Committee last week was absolutely shocking. They made it clear that they do not expect that half million people to go back to work. That's 20 billion quid a year. And they are worried that more will drop out of the workplace. And if the same amount did it again, it'll be another 20 billion. That's what we're dealing with here. It, and so, yes, it's fascinating to hear the libertarian point of view, but the practicalities are of a completely different order of, of importance. And that's why I think this is a good measure. Well, I think this phrase, health emergency, is exactly what I was talking about when it comes to the hangover from the COVID years. You know, these are these are the tools that are now at the government's disposal to say something must be done. And a lot of people are more comfortable with that idea. And indeed, as we learned in lockdown, a lot of people are happy to, to have the rights of their neighbors taken away. I mean, back in December 2023, just two months ago, people being polled were still saying, about a quarter of people were saying they wanted nightclubs to shut and they wanted to return to the rule of six. They're, Sorry, this is last year. This was two months ago. There is that authoritarian streak. And I think what's notable about this generational smoking ban is that people, unsurprisingly, are pulling in favor of a policy that is never going to restrict their liberties. It's going to restrict the liberties of people who aren't even able to be polled yet because they're children. I think that if we wanted to talk about that pragmatism, if we want to talk about getting people back into the work Workforce, if we want to talk about people dying from smoking-related illnesses on the NHS. If that were really what this policy were about, then Rishi Sunak would ban smoking, right? He'd ban it for the 45-year-olds. He'd ban it for the 55-year-olds. If you really cared about health care now and you really cared about the economy now, that's what you do. The fact that he's banning it for a generation that isn't really smoking, that has rejected this in a way that no other generation has done it before, suggests to me that this is more of a moral issue for him. It's what he believes, it's what he thinks, it's what many other people believe and think, by the way, but don't necessarily think it's their right to tell future adults what to do. And I'd just lastly like to make that make a point about libertarianism. Of course, libertarians would argue for more liberty, for more freedom. This is not a libertarian issue. 
The idea that the state, again, Britain is completely alone in doing this. You know, this is actually quite a radical thing that's about to happen in the UK. I don't think it takes a libertarian. I think you can just be a small L liberal. I think you can be on the left. I think you can be on the right. I think you can hold just about any view apart from authoritarianism and think to yourself, gosh, do I really want the government setting two tiers of rights for adults, saying some can purchase a legal product and others cannot. Do I really think it's the place of government to tell people what they can and cannot put in their bodies, especially now that smoking is banned in public buildings and all the rest of it? You know, we, we have a lot of regulations around smoking. Do I really think that this overstep is an appropriate one? You don't have to be a radical libertarian to believe that. I think I disagree with James when he says that liberty isn't at the heart of the British government and, and British outlook. I think a lot of countries around the world, America included, look at um, the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment and out of modern Britain, and they think that those ideas have been exported to the rest of the world, so that liberty is at the heart of what the UK believes, and actually very often has been at the heart of what the Tory party believes, and that this embrace of the nanny state, it doesn't gel, it doesn't fit, it doesn't feel right. And, you know, I, I, I really hope that when this debate happens in Parliament, some people will stand up and, and say things that, you know, they might not want for themselves, but they want other people to be able to, to decide for themselves. Because this isn't about enjoying smoking or liking smoking or embracing vapes or promoting vapes. This is about whether or not the government or a politician should tell you whether or not you can do that. And that's a very different point. James, just finally, if this really is a health emergency, mm. and that's the, the reason behind a lot of this thinking, and completely appreciate all the the worrying points you've made about the economy and, and having to get people back in the workforce and so on. But if that is the case, then why is this policy being targeted at people who are not yet workers? I mean, why not ban smoking entirely for people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, people who we need to get into the workforce now? Yeah, no, listen, I think it's a really good point. Very fair point. So the, so the plan, the strategy is to have very liberal rules really on vaping, you know, in, in the face of WHO guidance, which is that vaping should be by prescription only. So we're having, we're opening up the vaping for adults market in quite a big way, more than quite a lot of other countries, and try to push current smokers into vaping. And the NHS is literally handing out 3 million vapes to adults to try and do encouraging. We couldn't be doing more to try and get current smokers moving like from leaded fuel to unleaded fuel, from the very nasty smoking to the much better for you, but still not great vaping. What we're also having to do is to stop kids from being sold highly addictive nicotine vapes. And, and uh, that is sensible. And I'm really disappointed by the vaping industry and the tobacco industry, which owns quite a lot of the vaping industry, uh, pushing those vapes at kids so hard. I used to be in the Ministry of Sound. I was in youth marketing for 10 years. I can tell you, you wouldn't have so many children vaping as they are today if the vaping industry wasn't trying to sell it to them uh, in the way that they are. So that is very disappointing. And then we have this target of nudging everyone off tobacco altogether so that my daughter, who's 14, won't be able to buy cigarettes at all. Now, it's my hope and aspiration that actually in 10 years' time, there will be no tobacco cigarettes being sold in shops in the UK, and the door will be open to doing the kind of man that you spoke about, because actually so few people will be smoking and the culture uh, will have moved on so far and the public attitudes will have moved on so far. This is a more thoughtful, tentative approach. We're trying not to take cigarettes out of the hands of people who have a smoking addiction. That seems like a reasonable, pragmatic approach. 
personally, I would have gone harder. But this feels like it's proportionate to the to the mood of the country at the moment. Kate and James, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Next up, can the UAE really be trusted on press freedom? Here at The Spectator, it's certainly a question close to our hearts at the moment as we face possibly being sold off to an Abu Dhabi-backed fund. In the magazine this week, Anna Summers-Cox, the co-founder of The Art Newspaper, writes about her own experience dealing with the UAE as an art journalist, and it's not exactly a good one. Anna joins us now, together with our editor, Fraser Nelson. Anna, in the magazine this week, you write about your own experience when you were seeking to launch a new version of your magazine, The Art Newspaper, in the Middle East, in collaboration with the UAE. In the end, you only actually got to launch one issue, and and it's a story you've never actually told before. Can you start by explaining to listeners what exactly happened? What happened was that back in 2007, the French and the Emirati government announced that they were going to build a version of the Louvre in Abu Dhabi, and it was a very, very big deal. It involves 400 million in euros and, you know, exchanges at the highest level, all organised with the President of France. And the French opposed this a great deal, like politicians, museum curators. They said that the Arabs wouldn't appreciate it. Uh, it was disgusting to take money and so on. I supported it as editor of the art newspaper because I'm an international person and I firmly believe that the more people know about each other, the less hard it is for them to be enemies. And this was relatively close to September the 11th, in which my, my, my daughter got caught up. I mean, she's perfectly okay, but, you know. And um, so I supported it in the art newspaper. And then suddenly I got a, a missive from uh, Abu Dhabi saying, would you like to do a newspaper in Arabic? And then I said, well, I'd love to do it. And I'd love to do it as long as it covered the whole Arab-speaking world, which is actually Morocco to the Gulf. And we worked on it and we produced a first issue, Akbar al-Fanoon, it's called. And it had real proper news written for the, for the Middle, East, Middle Eastern audience. And then I went to the Venice Biennale where, stupidly, Dubai, which is one of the Emirates, was opening the first pavilion, for first national pavilion for the OE. Abu Dhabi took offence with Dubai, opened up its second pavilion. And the BBC interviewed me about what I thought about uh, the fact that the UAE was there at all. And I said, great stuff, you know, wonderful to see all this art, but a bit confusing that they've got two pavilions. You know, most people can't find the UAE on the map. You know, why two? And I was suddenly cancelled. No more Akbar al-Fanoon. Nobody would speak to me. Nobody would answer any emails. And then gradually contact was made with me again. And we worked for some years and we did articles and we got to know people at a very high level. I mean, really up at the royal level. And the launch of the Louvre Abu Dhabi came 2017. By which stage I was, you know, part of the establishment practically. And uh, we'd done a magazine with interviews with, um, again, with royals and curators and so on. And I was supposed to chair the very first meeting in this wonderful building. I do recommend you go and see it. And um, at the same time, we published in the art newspaper two articles, one of which was about the workers, you know, the famous workers who put up these buildings. And it was from a report commissioned by the UAE itself by PricewaterhouseCoopers and, and said nothing particularly shocking. It just said, you know, this year's report says things are getting better, but not perfect yet. And I also published a review of a book that revealed that the Louvre Abu Dhabi project had been launched with something called offsets. Offsets are what governments pay to countries that are buying arms for them to go into a special fund to be spent on 
in theory, sort of good projects, a sort of kind of official bribe, and that this, this money had enabled the, the whole project to get off the ground. Well, my uh, hotel telephone rings very early one morning, and I'm told, your services are no longer required. You won't be chairing this meeting. I, I didn't even get an invitation to the opening, even though I sort of gate crashed it. So that was the end of it. We have not gone for, for, on with the project. It total censorship. Nobody's been in touch with me ever since. I was just completely blanked. I tried to explain to a very senior Emirati the concept of the freedom of press. I said, look, if you only write praise, nobody believes it. And I even quoted a, a, a picturesque fact that um, Turkish carpets are made with a flaw in the design deliberately because only God is perfect. I thought that that might sort of get through. He literally just stared at me. He said nothing whatsoever. I knew that it was the end. So freedom of the press there, it just doesn't exist. It's not a concept. Fraser, given that um, the UAE may soon buy the Telegraph and also this magazine, I would love to get your reaction to Anna's story. Well, what struck me about Anna's story was that it illustrates that the Emirates work by informal mechanisms, not by formal ones. This is how it is in quite a lot of autocratic states. If you are rude about the government, then you will find a strange accident befalls you. Now, this matters because right now our Emirates are saying, look, you've got to let us buy the Telegraph and the Spectator because we're going to set up a formal board that's going to protect the um, editor of a Telegraph to make sure there's no editorial interference. Now, this, of course, no journalist takes these boards seriously. They're, they're a bit of a joke. And throughout history, you know, from Rupert Murdoch to what's happening in Poland right now, the boards offer no protection at all. But they are a fig leaf for those who want a fig leaf. So if I understand that David Cameron is one of the people going around saying, look, it's time to take the Emirates' money. We can now guarantee editorial independence via these boards. So if you want to believe in the fiction of these boards, then there's a device here. I understand one of George Osborne's ideas <laughs> that would allow you to do so. But those of us who are trying to say that this would offer no protection at all can now point to an example and what Anna says, that this is exactly what you would imagine would happen. The art newspaper, tremendous potential for the Middle East, including the Saudis, by the way, lots of obvious market value for the project over there. But all it took was a relatively mild comment looking at the origins of the financing of the Louvre. And then all of a sudden, the plug is pulled. That's exactly how I imagined it would, it would happen here. And it can happen in newspapers quite easily. Say, if there's somebody writing for The Spectator who um, decides to say, hang on, look at Sheikh Mansour's brother and look at the way that he took a cattle prod to one of the people who owed him money. But, and say Sheikh Mansour is insensitive about this. And then all of a sudden, you can get an informal network of an almost um, self-censorship regime, which would augur against governments being given permission to buy publications. Are there any guarantees that would reassure you? Or do those not, not No, I, I think it, the idea that any publication can be independent of its owners is laughable. Anna, from your own experience, what, what do you make of the UAE's bid to try and take hold of The Spectator and The Telegraph? I, I think it's completely untenable because, as your editor has just said, it's the it's the, the informal passing of vetoes. I, for example, never knew who cancelled me at the end. Was it the crown prince himself? Did it rise that high? Was it somebody lower down, a sort of flunky who wanted to, to please him? Nobody would ever have told me. And the most intellectual and, 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 and 
revered man in 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 the Gulf, um, a man called Zaki Nusebe, who was the right hand man of Sheikh Zayed, who created the Emirates, can't intervene because he's born Palestinian, even though he's now an Emirati citizen. He can just watch. So you will have people watching and being appalled by what might be happening. But unless they feel that they are untouchable themselves, they won't say anything. Hmm. Fraser, some people have said that the UAE, it's not exactly Russia or China in terms of belligerence towards the West. So do you, do you buy that argument? This is the argument that the Emirates are our allies. Uh, and it's certainly true that they stand with an open checkbook wanting to spend all sorts of money, which David Cameron says, as he said in the case of China in 2010, that Britain should basically take the cash. Now, I think there's a big difference between an ally, a neutral country, and somebody who's actively friends with your enemies, as the Emirates are. Last month, for example, we saw Vladimir Putin um, come to the UAE. He was given a 21-gun salute, treated like a conquering hero. And the Emirates are right now defining their neutrality as being as playing all sides. They're buying Putin's oil, funding his war machine, helping him move oil by lending their ships. And they're seeing, will this in any way affect our relationship with Britain? And it seems not. It seems that there is no price to pay at all if you are actively aiding and abetting Britain's enemies. So we're in the bizarre situation here where the biggest conflict we're supporting right now is the Ukrainian side against Putin. And yet we're considering allowing Putin's <coughs> dear friends, that's how they describe themselves and the time of the visit, to buy our democratic apparatus in the form of the newspaper and the magazine, as well as infrastructure like 15% of Vodafone, 49% of a dog bank wind farm. All the investments which these um, autocracies want to make tend to be for national infrastructure. And I don't think we're yet properly considering the national security implications of letting them do so. And Anna, just finally, if you, if you could go back in time, is there anything that you would have done differently? Or are you somewhat grateful to have discovered how the UAE actually operates and perhaps we're grateful to you <laughs> well i think the trouble is that you can never know when you're going to offend somebody because it can be the tiniest thing and you never know exactly whom you offended it's a it's a monarchy you have to think english medieval monarchs it's a pyramid which narrows very very sharply towards the top there is it's hugely reverential within itself because it's a feudal kind of setup so people are in within the Emirates always second guessing what the chief might wish. So it can be the tiniest thing that will bring down everything on like a ton of bricks on your head. And I mean, since you're, the art world you'd have thought is fairly kind of safe, but even in the sort of minor political waters in which we were swimming, we managed to offend people so much that something that they had ardently wanted themselves and had actually put money into suddenly just stopped and nobody ever got in touch with me to tell me why. Anna and Fraser, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. And finally, if Britain goes to war, can Gen Z be counted on? Recently, General Sir Patrick Sanders, Chief of the General Staff, said that Britain may need to resort to conscription in the possibility of a war against Russia. The Spectator's assistant online editor, Angus Colwell, who is himself a member of Gen Z, was sent out to investigate, and he joins us on the podcast now, together with Dr. Mike Martin, a security expert who was formerly a British Army officer. Angus, in the magazine this week, you asked the question, can 
Gen Z be counted on to defend Britain. And you speak to a lot of people your own age, because you are, how old are you, sorry? 23. 23. So you are the office Gen Zer, if you Yeah, like. one of a few. But yeah. One of a few. So you speak to you speak to quite a few people your own age, and what was the general what was the general consensus? Was there in fact a general consensus? There was a general consensus, and it's that you can't count on Gen Z to fight. I mean, the stats show that clearly. The army recruiting numbers are going down year on year, and yeah, apart from a couple of people who said that they would fight for Britain, etc., there was a general hesitancy towards the idea of. Um, going to war for your country. I mean, a lot of people, patriotism doesn't mean as much as it used to. The army pays incredibly poorly now. And the lifestyle that you might get in the army doesn't sound particularly glamorous. So in short, Gen Z probably aren't the most willing soldiers. Would you fight for your country? Uh, Yes, if I believed that the threat probably was going to really negatively impact my way of life. So in the case of an invasion, probably, but would I be jumping abroad to fight for Britain? Probably not. So just your way of life, not anyone else's way of life. <laughs> That's a very Gen Z way of looking at it. That's so Gen Z, Angus. <laughs> Mike, what do you make of this sort of sense that Gen Z are somehow less patriotic and more individualistic? Do you, do you, do you agree with that? And does that, what do you well, think that means from a recruiting I, I, point of view? I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm 41, so I'm, I'm just a millennial. So I'm a couple of generations out. And I, of course, did fight for my country. I'm, I'm a little bit suspicious of, and this is not just about this argument, of when we say, you know, Gen, Gen Z are, you know, they, they're like this and, and millennials are like that. And of course, it's a huge cohort. And, you know, as you said, in your samples, some people did want to fight for their country or you know, they might fight for you. And you, you, so, you know, you, I think everybody would be fighting if, if there were, you know, another country's tanks in Kent. I th- I, army recruitment tends to, or, or military recruitment more broadly, tends to go up and down. And there are, you know, a number of factors that are usually pegged to that. One is, are there other jobs? We've got pretty full employment at the moment. So in times when there's high levels of unemployment, generally the military tends to do quite well. It's a steady job. I think the other thing is that Often, uh, you know, there's a couple of things lacking at the moment in 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 the military. You, you spoke about lifestyle. You're right. Also, conditions are really bad at the moment. The government and the military have let things like accommodation and housing slip quite far down the priority ladder. The military is not brilliantly funded at the moment. And of course, that does have an impact, particularly when there are other jobs that people can go to. So that's the first thing. But actually, I think there's two higher order things. And... You know, no one ever joins the army to to make loads of money. You, you, you often join it because of a higher ideal, like there's a purpose or you're defending something or it's about values. And, and those two things really are lacking. Britain's military and more broadly, you know, Britain's place within the world, we don't really have a keen sense of that at the moment. And the military is you know, it's doing some training in Africa and then there's this big support for Ukraine. And it's not really clear. There's not really a clear focus. We're meant to be global Britain and sailing aircraft carriers through the the Taiwan Straits. And there isn't really a clearly defined focus of what Britain's military is for. And that's obviously quite dangerous at the moment when we have this world that's becoming increasingly turbulent. And because I, I guess we don't have that purpose, I think linked to that is... Uh, often recruitment, and this really is the key factor that underpins recruitment into military forces and particularly armies, is whether there's a war on or not. Because 
in every generation, there is a, you know, a significant cohort who want to go to war. They want to prove themselves. They feel the call to defend or, or, or to, or to attack, perhaps. And when there is a war on that's clearly defined, there were no problems with the recruitment when Afghanistan and Iraq were on, for instance. And indeed, you know, Afghanistan was the war that I was involved in. I, I met a number of people who joined specifically to go to Afghanistan and to fight. And once they'd done that, they then left the army because that was something that they wanted to do in their lives. So we have this broader absence of purpose around the British military it's quite poorly funded and that bleeds into conditions as well as equipment. And there isn't a war on. And I think if those three things change and we obviously have, you know, not complete control over whether Britain gets involved in a war, you know, the enemy always has a vote. I think recruitment does tend to turn around. And I think all of those three factors really are, are separate from this question of whether Gen Z is, is, you know, feels like X or feels like Y or millennials feel like X or feel like Y. May I ask, Mike, uh, why did you leave the army? I left the army. So I was in for six years and I joined because I wanted to prove myself. And I left uh, when I was in the army, I was a push to speaker and I was a political officer. And I was actually the first one in the British military. And I set the program up and I trained a bunch of people that came into it and, and, you know, defined how it was going to be used and all the rest of it. And then I was very lucky the army paid for me to do a PhD. So I carried on serving in Afghanistan and did a PhD on the side. And so I was hyper-specialist in Afghanistan. I spoke the language. My PhD was on Afghanistan. I'd set up this program in Afghanistan. And the army was offering me the kind of standard career path, which was, you know, to go to Purbright and train recruits and then maybe become an adjutant one day and, and so on and so forth. And really, I'd done everything that I wanted to do in the army. I'd had, I had tested myself. I had an extraordinary adventure, both intellectual and physical. And I looked at what was offered to me and I thought, actually, I, I, I could spend another five or 10 years in the army and I, I wouldn't have the rewards personally, emotionally, intellectually that I've had over the over the previous six years. But, you know, I had a slightly esoteric pathway through the army and it, it will be different for every person. Angus, one of the points that you make in your piece is that Gen Z may indeed have the skills that the army desperately needs. You you say that you spent years gains maxing, word I hadn't heard, at Pure Gym. I have you not. You know, the prod- yeah, <laughs> protein content of a chicken breast. And you've also spent more than, not you personally, but more than a decade training via first-person shooter games. Do you think Gen Z is sort of up for a fight, even if it's not necessarily a fight for king and country? Yeah, well, there's this sort of idea that I, I think is predates Gen Z that the army can be a bit of a lost boys home. You know, if you're a, especially if there's a, we hear a lot nowadays about there's a crisis of modern masculinity. And so you sort of think, well, the army would be a way to get these, you know, guys off the streets, put their gym used to work, put their training on Call of Duty. You know, they'll be, they'll be great. They'll be well up to show the Russians what's what. Hopefully that would be true, but it's not being particularly borne out in the statistics, probably because... I think the the age old thing is true, and that people hear the army and, and they don't want to die. I mean, like that is that is why most people say probably wouldn't want to join the army. I mean, as as Mike was saying, recruitment is good in wars, but even in the first and the second world war, we still needed conscription. It wasn't there wasn't this great movement of people going, I'll sign up to 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 fight in the war. We did need to use some some stick as well as carrots. So 
It'd be a nice idea, I think, if, I mean, Gen Z, the, the raw ingredients are there. They're probably immune to trauma from, you know, I've seen a lot of things on TikTok I shouldn't have seen, which, you know, should teach me how to handle the realities of war a bit. But unfortunately, I, I don't know if it's if it's particularly useful. Mike, last week, General Sir Patrick Saunders, the chief of the general staff, uh, he sort of ignited this whole debate by by suggesting that we may need to resort to conscription in the possibility of a war against Russia. So in this whole debate around the issue, do you think that conscription is actually a realistic prospect? I, I know General Patrick pretty well, actually. I worked for him uh, for a year as his advisor. And he's, a, as you might imagine from a former infantryman, a fairly straight-talking bloke. I I don't think conscription is politically realistic at the moment. I think that there's a mismatch between the world, which is becoming increasingly turbulent and quite dangerous, and we're starting to see government ministers allude to that. You know, Grant Shapps has done that recently. Obviously, Patrick Sanders hasn't said those comments without clearing them. Uh, David Cameron's spoken about, you know, red lights flashing across the board. So the, there is some rhetoric, but the public, I don't think at large, has genuinely woken up to how dangerous and unstable the world is at the moment. And there are multiple overlapping crises that seem to be metastasizing and getting worse. And there are a number of things that are just over the horizon, like, you know, the effects of climate change and the Sahel and the Middle East and so on and so forth. So at the moment, because the realisation isn't there, I think conscription is politically very difficult. I think what conscription does do, rather than necessarily generating a force right now that you can use right now, is it starts to, it's part of that process of customising the civilian population to what military service is like. And, you know, we've kind of seen this with the Israelis, right? They're the, they're the classic example where... Everyone has gone through it so that when they have a war and they do call everyone up, everyone's got some sort of familiarity they know what to expect with military service and therefore the training pipeline to get a vast civilian army trained up is much quicker than otherwise. And I think General Patrick did allude to that in his comments. It's really about creating a baseline of not only knowledge about what military life is like, but also a familiarity with it and perhaps a sympathy with it that means that when the call does come to actually, guys, we really do need a you know a, a million man army or whatever, then there's enough people who know what that's about and 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 can see the the point of that. Angus and Mike, thank you very much for joining. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you pick up the latest issue of the magazine, you can read everything we've talked about. I'm Lara Prendergast, and I'm William Moore, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.